0: Well, let me say happy Mother's Day to the moms that are in the room. Of course, we're always sensitive to those who couldn't be here with their moms. Maybe your mom has, has passed and you miss her particularly today, uniquely today. After my mom's recent illness, I'm a little more grateful probably this year for uh, the time that we still have to spend and hope for, for more. You know, I know there's always a sensitive time for those who would like to be moms and, and God has not answered that prayer in a way that you would like yet or It's not answered in the way that you'd hoped, but I'm also grateful today that whatever our burdens are, whatever our cares are, whatever weight of emotion we have, whatever state we're in, God already knows. He knows us. He knows you well, knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you, cares about you, whatever those cares are, whatever those weights are, he invites you to cast them on him, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And I hope you leave here knowing that today, that he cares for you and he knows you personally. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for this great day. Made great because of you. Particularly great because of your power, your justice, your goodness displayed through the resurrection of your son, our Savior. We thank you that we get to worship in light of the resurrection today. That our lives have been transformed because of Christ. Our sins forgiven because of his sacrifice on the cross. Our futures changed because we have been raised to new life. Our eternity guaranteed because you placed your spirit in us as a seal. Guaranteeing what is to come. Lord, you've granted us life. And I pray that we would live it to the full. Abundantly. Lord, speak to us through your word today. I I pray that you'd capture us, capture our thinking, our attention, our imagination. Father, I pray that we would have a sense that today, though you speak collectively to us through your word, you speak uniquely and personally to us by your word, through your spirit, and that we would feel that you're talking to us, and we would respond. We respond to the God who is. Father, we would follow our Savior, our King, who is alive and well today and is coming again. Lord, may we live in light of that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a phrase you may or may not be familiar with. It comes from that Latin translation of the New Testament called the Vulgates. And it's a simple two-word phrase, "Corum Deo. Corum Deo. It's drawn from Psalm 56, 13, among a few other places in Scripture. In Psalm 56, 13, here's a statement of faith, the declaration of salvation, and the reality of God and His presence. Listen to what it says. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You have delivered me, you have rescued me, that... For the rest of my days, I may walk before you. That's the essence of Quorum Deo: to live in the presence of, before the face of God. The late R. C. Sproul said, "The essence of the Christian life is seeking that which is most important. The big idea is that the Christian is called to live all of life, Quorum Deo. To live Quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God, for the glory of God. It is to understand that whatever we're doing, and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent, and there is no place so remote that we can escape His penetrating gaze. That's my challenge to you today, as you think of t- uh, today's text in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Not only are you before the presence of God, but to live intentionally in such a way that recognizes you know that, and that, that bears such weight on your life that it dictates the things that you think about, the things that you want, the things that you choose, the things that you look forward to, how you view the difficult things of life or the frightening things of life or the future in life, that you live this before the face of God. I want to read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16 this morning. I want you to read there with me. Mine will be the allowed part. Yours will be the quiet part. 1 Timothy 6, 11-16. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who, is, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I want to talk about the life of the godly. I want to talk about a challenge, a charge that Paul, this now aging minister, with so many scars of following Christ, so much to share and give by the Holy Spirit, sharing now to a young man who's beginning ministry in a monumentally difficult place, a city rife with paganism, animosity towards the gospel. The burgeoning church now coming together with people who grew up in religious cultures, knowing the Old Testament, but filled with the principles of Judaism that had now been twisted and contorted by men to look something very different than what God intended. To those who came from very pagan backgrounds where they worshiped many gods or no gods at all. And in this context, sharing them the good news of Christ, that whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you've done, there's grace available to you. A new life is possible for you, and the past is not precursor to the future. If you'll put your faith and trust in God, you become a new creation. You become a new people. You become God's family, His church. And this is how you live. And he describes this life of the godly. He turns his attention specifically to Timothy. We've seen so many challenges to godliness, false teachers and false teachings. So many errant beliefs and then the accompanying behaviors that go with those beliefs. So many challenges to being a follower of Christ, so many difficulties, so many obstacles. And he starts this statement with these words, but as for you, and it reminds me that when it comes to living a godly life, my first challenge to you today is this. The godly life is personal and it's non-contingent. I want you to write that down. I'm going to give you five statements today about the godly life. And this is the first one. It's personal and it's non-contingent. In other words, it doesn't matter what background you come from. We pray for all of these families today. We recognize the Christian homes that these children are going to grow up in. Many of you come from Christian homes and families and backgrounds. And and I praise God for that. What a gift that is to you. I mean, what a precious gift. What an asset that is. For any of you in this room who are believers in Christ today, who have Christian parents, who had Christian parents who've passed, or grandparents, thank God for the godly legacy. And yet... Each of us is responsible for ourselves. You're responsible for your response to Christ. It's up to you to decide what you're going to do with the truth of God revealed in Christ. Are you going to believe? Are you going to throw all of your trust and life onto Him? Are you going to live in a way that honors Him? Are you going to live in such a way that recognizes that one day you'll stand before Him? That's on you. And I use the term non-contingent. Because ultimately, it has nothing to do with what anybody else does. When you stand before God, you stand before God in the company of yourself. And you will not be able to say, but you don't know what it was like living in 2023 America. I mean, you don't know how hard it was to be a Christian then. You won't be able to say that. You won't be able to say, but you know, I didn't really know any other Christians or there was no one living according to the Bible. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, there's this contrast between these false teachers and all their false teachings and all the ways that they were creating conflict and chaos in the church and distorting the truth. But Paul looks at Timothy and he says, But as for you, and that's my challenge to you this morning, as for you, it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. It doesn't matter the choices that they're making. It doesn't matter what's normal or typical or commonplace. You have to make a decision of how you're going to live for yourself, as for you. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, gives us a command do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't allow this world to press you into its mold, to shape the way that you think about what's true or what's right, or what's good, or or about who God is, or how to live a life that honors Him or pleases Him. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good, acceptable, perfect. How will any of us, in all the chaos of this world, and the bizarreness of thinking, and the negligence of truth. How will we ever know what's good, acceptable, perfect? How will we know what is from God? Only only through God's word will we know that. So you and I have this fundamental choice. Am I being conformed or am I being transformed? As for me, and as for you, you've got to decide that. Am I allowing the world to dictate what I think is true? Am I allowing the world to determine what I think is right? Am I allowing the world to set for me a different authority than God? And am I living for something short-lived, transient, temporal? Or am I living for something everlasting, immeasurable? I can remember something my mom said to me a lot. You've heard me repeat it to you. Don't let other people decide how you're going to live. Don't let other people decide how you're going to live. Don't let them decide how you're going to react or respond. What you're going to say or what you're going to do, what you're not going to do, what you're not going to choose, whether positive or negative, as for you. It's personal and it's non-contingent. It's not dependent on other people. Make that commitment today. The life of the godly is personal and non-contingent. second truth I want you to see from this passage is the the life of the godly is is moral and, and measurable It's not nebulous, it's not unknowable, it's moral. It has to do with right and wrong thinking, right and wrong choosing. It has everything to do with the decisions that we make. And we get to choose what we're going to do. We get to choose what we're not going to do, and we get to choose what we're going to do. Paul told Timothy that this godly living is both a fleeing from and a pursuing after. It's it's a running away from certain things but it's a running towards other things. Flee these things, he said. Flee from things that characterize false teachers. Flee from the decisions and values that result in a negligence of Scripture or that reflect the values of your culture. Flee these controversies and quarrels. Free these delusions that the only reason you would follow Christ is because you can get stuff from Him. Flee all of that. And instead, pursue these things. Pursue measurable things, righteousness, choosing to live rightly, godliness, modeling your life after Christ, faith, trusting in him and believing him even when you can't see it, love sacrificially even when you're not being loved, steadfastness so that you're not waffling and wavering, gentleness. Pursue these things, go after these things. Philip Graham Ryken wrote, real growth in godliness means more than just trading in one sin for another. And I would add to his statement, it means more than just downgrading sin from things we think are very serious to things that we think are less serious. It means replacing the don'ts with the do's. It means getting rid of vices and replacing them with virtues. And it means developing the complete character that allows the Christian to serve God in this world. You've got to decide If you're going to live this sort of life before the face of God, God who's ever-present, God who always sees and knows, the God in front of whom will appear one day to give an account of everything, what, as a Christian, have I got to flee? And what, as a Christian, must I pursue? And I want to ask you three diagnostic questions regarding this truth. One, are you running from evil as you would run from danger? Are you running from evil like you would run from danger? Have any of you ever run physically from something you thought was a dangerous threat to you? Anyone? I shared this story with some of you before, but for some of you, it'll be new. I probably should have brought the picture so I could show you I'm telling the truth. We were on a mission trip in Cuba, and we saw an ox out in the field. Big thing. I mean, about 18 tons. Huge. Horns, spread of horns, I don't know, 14, 15 meters. No, it was big. It was really big. And we had this joke thing, I don't know, sort of just testing each other. One of the guys on the trip dared me to go touch him. So I was going to go touch him on his head between his horns. Now, I'm not kidding. It was big. It wasn't that big. But this is a big animal here grazing in the field. So I went up slowly as I could, and the animal just never really paid me attention. Kept his head down, which was good for me. And as I got really close, I mean close, and I reached to touch him, he swung his head around really fast and hard. And I could see it happening, and I jumped. I don't know how close he was to me. I felt like it was centimeters, but I jumped, and then I ran as fast and as far as I could. As I'm running back towards the the group that was with me, several of the guys were just laughing their heads off. One of them was actually down on his, you know, hands on his knees, just, you know, I guess that's the term guffaw or something. And I didn't know why they were laughing. Because the whole time I'm running, I could hear this this bull right behind me. I mean, right behind me. I could hear the shuffling, shuffling, shuffling right behind me. As it turns out, he was on a chain. (laughs) And he never moved. But I had a full backpack on. And the noise I heard was my backpack <laughs> behind me. But I'm telling you, in that moment, I felt like it was life and death. And I think, of, I think of Joseph in Potiphar's house. When offered the opportunity to commit sexual sin, adultery, and he flees. He flees so much he doesn't care, he leaves his coat behind in the grip of the woman tempting him. Are you running from evil like you would run from danger? Are you teasing evil? Are you moderating the evil? Are you handling it? You think you've got a grip on it? Flee it. Godly living requires fleeing it. Are you running after good like you would run after success or pleasure? The things that you want so much that you'll get up early for, that you'll stay up late, that you'll spend your money on or give your time to. Are that you'll study for or work towards? Are you running for good in the same way you're running for all those things? All those rings you're trying to grasp? those awards you're trying to win, the recognition that you care about? Are you running for good that way? And are you actively engaged in building up your faith? Actively engaged in it. Fight the good fight of faith," he says. Fight the good fight of faith. Faith is not passive. It doesn't come easily. It's not for the indifference or, or the casual. You've got to fight for this. You've you got to choose what you're going to believe. You've got to choose what you're going to put into your thinking, what's going to inform you. You've got to choose how you spend your time. You've got to choose who influences you. You've got to fight for faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Choose this. Number three. Charge to the godly means that a godly person understands that godly living is doctrinal and intellectual godly living has its root in the truth what i think is real and right i have to think about this i think something that we've missed a great deal in modern pop christianity the sword that seems to draw the masses or would sell a book or get someone on television is generally bereft of anything deep intellectually that would require someone to really work through this to read something that challenges them and maybe requires them to reread it a few times or to think hard about, to ponder or contemplate or to stretch our thinking or to make us ask questions or dig deeper. Your diagnostic question is this, are you seeking and studying the truth so that you might think deeply and rightly about God? This is very different, by the way, than just having opinions about God. Lots of people have opinions about lots of things. But that's not what we're talking about here. You've heard us speak against this sort of commonplace Bible study method. Sit around in a group and someone reads a passage out loud and then the question is asked. How does that make you feel? What do you think about that? With all due respect, I don't care how it makes you feel. And unless you thought deeply about the truth, it doesn't matter what you think about it. What is true about it? What is it saying to us? What does it require of us? Are you studying the truth so you can think deeply about God? The most immense subject matter in the world, infinite, one that you could explore as deeply and as intensely as possible for the rest of your life and still not begin to fathom the depths of it, is God. To think deeply about the most important entity in the world. The most important object of affection in the world. the, The most critical element that controls the world. God. Every heresy in the history of man begins and began with thinking of God differently than he is. Every single one. I think of Psalm 50 verse 21. The great sin... You thought, God says, that I was just like you. Every heresy is rooted in that. Every deviation from orthodox thinking, that which is true and right, orthodox believing, that's orthopraxy, behavior, begins with a wrong understanding of God. Every liberal or progressive movement that redefines, reimagines, or reinterprets God or Christ is rooted in a wrong understanding of the God who is revealed in His Word. So think deeply about Him. Here's you a promise. Second Peter 1.3. Listen to the weight of this. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now catch that. There's the statement. He's granted by His power everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He granted us everything we need for life and godliness through knowing Him, the knowledge of Him. Now listen, knowledge by itself will not guarantee godliness, but I can promise you this. Ignorance will always guarantee ungodliness. I'm not simply saying the aim of the Christian life is academic or intellectual, but I will guarantee you that the opposite of that is true if you do not know Him, not your imagination of Him, not a cultural reinterpretation of him, but through the revelation of him. If you do not know him as he is, that is a surefire pathway to ungodliness. Ignorance guarantees ungodliness. Look at the text that we've seen so far. How often has this theme been repeated? If you've been here for several weeks now, since the inception of this study in 1 Timothy, you've heard some of these. It may sound redundant. Chapter 1, verse 3 Timothy's instructed to teach the truth. In chapter 1, verse 10, he's told to teach sound doctrine. In chapter 4, verse 6, he's instructed to point out the truth, to focus on good teaching. Chapter 6, verse 3, his teaching is to be grounded in Christ and its effect, which is godliness. Those are the words doctrine as they appear. The word teacher, teaching, appears multiple times, like again in verse 3. We're reminded to teach against false doctrine. Chapter 3, verse 2, What's what's an elder do as a primary purpose or focus? He teaches. Chapter 4, verse 2, tells us false teaching originates from demons. Chapter 4, verse 11, tells us the truth isn't something just to be taught. It's something to be commanded. Believe this. Do this. Chapter 4, verse 13, Timothy's told to devote his life to teaching. In chapter 4, verse 16, he's told to make sure you combine and never separate your life from your teaching. This is what perseveres you called integrity. Chapter 5, verse 17, double honor is given to the elder who specifically has the role of teaching. Chapter 6, verse 1, teaching is more important than your station in life. Wherever you find yourself, don't live in such a way that would dishonor the teaching. Chapter 6, verse 2, the teaching affects how we treat each other, all of our relationships. Chapter 6, verse 3, anyone who refuses sound teaching is conceited and understands nothing. It's central to it. But, it's not just intellectual. It's not just doctrinal. It's experiential and practical. Godly living is something that you do, not just something that you believe. The Christian life is how I live, not just how I think. It's not just the things I believe to be true theoretically. It's the things I demonstrate to be true in my belief experientially. I do these things that I believe and because of that because the godly life is based on truth and it's experiential it's practical it's practical i love this phrase and i I want you to think about this as you leave here today i want you to take this one with you This is a good one to talk about if you're in a D group with someone, formally or informally, or in a relationship with someone where you talk about spiritual things, or just with your family sitting around the table. Listen to what he tells Timothy. Now keep in mind, Timothy's a believer and he's been one since he was young. He comes from a family of believers, so he's got a heritage of faith. He's got a position of leadership because he's a teaching elder in his church already. And yet, Paul tells Timothy these words, take hold of this. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. We take hold of it I mean grab hold of this thing the worst sort of Christian living the worst the least satisfying the least enduring the least persuasive form of Christian living is that superficial kind of someone who says they believe certain things to be true but you could never find any evidence of that in how they actually live their lives Because they want the same things people who don't know Christ want. They live in the same way that people who don't know Christ live. Their focus in life is the same of those people who have no eternal focus. That's the least satisfying Christian life of all and the worst apologetic for our faith. He's saying, take hold of this. Don't just go through the motions. I mean, go all in on this thing. Be in this to win this. Jump all the way in. Don't play at this. You wonder why it's dissatisfying to you. Because you've got one leg in and one leg out. You're still trying to figure out if you're really going to trust Him with everything and do what He says. Because that means giving up certain things. And that means stopping trusting other things and stop living in a certain way. That, that means reorienting your values and purposes. Am I really living for things that are eternal? Or am I still living for because I just want a little bit more stuff? You have to decide this. You have to make this yours. Let me think about some of the relationships that we have and, and why we struggle in your marriage. You've got to go all in on this. You, you, can't be, you can't be happily married, successfully married if you're constantly thinking there's an escape hatch there if I need it. I, I'm not really sure I want to be married. Or, you know, this, this marriage hasn't been good from the beginning, so that's my excuse to not be in it now. Dive into this thing and, and be all in. Jump in. You can be saved and not be enjoying your salvation. You can be saved and, and not be intimate with Christ. You, you can be saved and not know peace that passes understanding. You can be saved and still searching for something else to satisfy you. Tragic, but true. A couple of questions for you. Are you doing the Christian life now? Or are you waiting for something or sometime in the future? I mean, when are you going all in? When are you going to say, okay, I, I, I'm all in on this. I'm not playing at this anymore. I'm not just giving lip service to this anymore. But grab hold of this. Timothy, you made a profession of faith in front of many witnesses. You confessed to the truth. Listen to what he said. Take hold of the eternal life to which you're called. Listen, I know being a Christian means for us that our sins are forgiven and one day we'll get to be with god in the new heaven and new earth we'll get to be with him forever and enjoy him forever i get that that's the ultimate take hold of it now live the life now grab hold of this thing he says so are you doing this are you enjoying this new life that you've been given by god Or is it really just in your mind, just a future tense reality? You got life now, do whatever you want here, but when you die, you get to go to heaven too. You get to be with Him there. Man, enjoy this thing now. It's practical. Take hold of it. What does it mean for you to take hold of it? What have you not taken hold of yet? Have you gotten serious about personal holiness? Or what about prayer? Or what about your own study of the Word? making it yours, making it real to you. Finally, the Christian life is hopeful. It's enduring. He tells Timothy these things to do. He challenges him. Live in a way that matches your faith. Live, in verse 13, in the presence of God, who gives life to all these things. Live in the presence of Christ. But then he reminds us something about Christ. Christ is not just he who was when you think of living for Jesus we're not living for this historical figure I hope if he could see me now he'd be proud like I might live in a way that would say honor the legacy of my grandfather you know if my grandfather was around I I hope he'd be proud of how I live and the choices I make that's not my approach to Christ It's not just the Jesus who appeared before Pontius Pilate. It's the Jesus that you and I are going to appear before one day. He's alive and well today. We we live with this hopeful life that it's going to be worth it. The assurance we have in Christ is whatever sacrifice we make, whatever cost we pay, whatever suffering we endure because of Christ, he's worth it. Everything about him is worth it. So we live in this way that's enduring It's hopeful. He says in verse 14, Keep the commandment, this commandment to live godly, unstained, free from reproach, do this honestly and purely in a way that people can't judge. So people can say, nothing ill of Christ or your faith in Him. For how long? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Endure. The, The Christian life is enduring What's your motivation to keep going? That it gets easier? Wrong. That it becomes beneficial, personally? Wrong again. We spoke about that last week. What's the motivation? Because one day you're going to see Jesus. And it'll be worth it then. We get to see Jesus. Again, let me reference the late R.C. Sproul. He said, The thing that is denied every Christian in this world is to be able to look directly on the face of God, the God we serve, the God we worship, the God we praise, the God we seek to obey. He's invisible. And yet, he promises that at the end of the road, we are going to be able to not only hear the voice of God, but we will be able to see his face. This is the highest goal of the Christian life, to behold the face of God. That's quorum deo. So here's your diagnostic question. Right now today, are you living with the companion motivators of fear and longing? I don't have time, for time's sake, to develop that idea of fear. But it is, it is replete. Scriptures are replete with references to the fear of God. And almost every time you or I have heard a sermon or read a devotional, an idea of fear... We minimize it. Well, it's just talking about healthy respect for. You're just talking about honor for, reverence. And yet, that doesn't connote what the scriptures really teach about seeing God as absolute, about recognizing God as infinitely holy, is understanding the implications of standing before Him and giving account every time we see in scripture a revelation of God any depiction of God people are are staggeringly afraid when they get a glimpse behind the curtain as it were and see the reality of God They, they tremble at this we've lost our sense of fear of him that he cares about what we do that he knows our hearts and our words and our actions and we will have to give an account we've lost our sense of this J.I. Packer said that our generation will go down as the age of the God shrinkers. That's exactly what we've done. It's not weighty to us anymore. It's not worthy of our obedience. We're not fearful of his judgments or aware of his presence. We've minimized the awesomeness of God. We've rejected the authority of God. We give little fault to the holiness of God. As a result, we have no fear of God. Every Christian should live with this understanding, this awareness of the Almighty. Yes, we long to see Him. We pray as the church has prayed for generation after generation after generation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We live with longing, but we also live with a righteous fearing. We live in a way that honors Him. Those are five themes in 1 Timothy chapter 6 for those who choose to live a godly life. It's different than the life of this world. It's different than, God forbid, what has become ordinary, commonplace Christianity. But that is biblical Christianity. But before you leave, I want to give a note for the not yet convinced. For the not yet convinced, for the one listening who thinks this sounds too radical, too extreme. Abnormal, unusual, outside of the mainstream. Well, you'd be right, it is. If the idea of living before the face of God... That description of God's constant presence everywhere, inescapably, if that hasn't gripped you yet, if you're still living for yourself, if you're still living for pleasure, if you're still living without any thoughts or regard for God in the day-to-day choices you make, the thoughts that you think, the things that you pursue, know this. That will work for a while. I mean, it's been working up until now, right? Or you wouldn't be doing it. If the choices you had made and the life you were living was bringing you pain and suffering, if the cost was too high, you'd be looking at making a change. But it's been working. There's no reason it won't continue to work. You can keep enjoying your life. You can keep using your time as you see fit. You can use your money in whatever way that pleases you. You can have whatever sort of relationships you want with whomever you want, however you want. You can continue to think whatever you want to think. You can believe to be true, whatever you want to be true. You can live in whatever way that pleases you until you just can't anymore. I mean, it will work until it won't work anymore. And the day that it won't work anymore will most assuredly be this day that Paul described to Timothy. Verse 14, until... The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He was the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, for Christians, we know there's an ultimate aim to all of this. There's a point and a purpose. There's a a spot on that future map that we're headed towards, and it's this. It's the return of Christ. Again, think of Sproul's words. God promises that at the end of the road, we're going to be able to not only hear the voice of God, but we'll be able to see His face. This is the highest goal of the Christian life, to behold the face of God. You see, for a Christian, there's nothing better than that. There's no better day than that. That's the day. That's, that's the day of the Lord. His visible appearance, that's our great hope. When things are at their worst for us, that's what renews us, This truth. This is what we lean hardest into in that moment. When we're most prone to be despairing or discouraged, this is what gives us peace and comfort in all this chaos. And when we think about the future, this is why we can think about the future and not be fearful, but be confident and even joyful. Because there's coming a day where everything that we believe is going to be validated, where it's going to be evidential, where faith will be sight not belief in the unseen. Every sacrifice we've made to be more faithful, every price we've paid in order to honor him and not compromise him will be more than worth it. Every promise we've clung to, it's all going to be fulfilled in that moment. Everything we have wanted deeply in our hearts will be ours. But what about you if you're not a believer? You see, at that moment, your unbelief will be obliterated. For every eye will see him. At that moment, your sense of autonomy will be decimated. Because he is the only sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. At that moment, every thought, every word, every choice, contrary to the goodness of God, will be instantly and immeasurably regretted. As much as the thought of the return of Christ thrills us as believers, it ought to terrify you if you're not one. That's simply the reality here. In the Apostles' Creed, which Christians like us have repeated for generations and generations and generations, centuries, there's a statement, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes to judge, he will judge on one primary criteria. Have you believed in Jesus, the Son of God? Have you trusted in his sacrificial death on the cross for the payment of your sins? Have you been transformed by his resurrection, which grants new life to those who belong to him? Does his spirit live in you as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come? Have you yielded your life to the King of kings and Lord of the lords? If you're still an unbeliever, If you're still refusing, rejecting God's offer of forgiveness and new life and life eternal in Christ, if you're still rebelling against God's authority in your life, then this return is the worst news possible. But there's hope. There's hope. While we await his return, there's hope. He returns as a conquering king Not as a suffering servant. In his first coming, he said he came to seek and save the lost. In his second coming, the scriptures say he comes to judge the living and the dead. Until his return, there's hope. God's provided a solution for your sin problem, your separation from him because of sin. And it's contained in the first part of the same section of the Apostles' Creed, where it says that Jesus Christ was crucified before he rose again on the third day. Jesus paid the penalty that our sins deserve. He rose so that our new lives could be possible. He lived so that we can live. He appeared to validate our faith, and He's returning again so we might know Him and enjoy Him forever and ever. When Jesus returns, all those forgiven in Christ will enjoy Him forever. All those who have refused Him, chosen to not believe in Him, will suffer forever. The next to the last verse in all of Scripture is this one. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Are you ready for that day? Would you pray with me? Father, may we live our lives consciously, intentionally, Not that, Father, we have any choice whether or not you see or know. Whether you care or judge, Father, for you are inescapable. Wherever we go, you are there. But, Father, as as your people, I pray that you renew our sense of you so that we live in a way that, that honors you, that we would live godly lives, that we would take this as a charge and that we would live in light of eternity. So, Father, I pray you'd use this day, this Lord's day, to renew us, to call us to a new commitment, a renewed commitment, to catalyze us moving again in the faith. If we've been struggling or straying, if we stepped off the path, if we've fallen into sin or rebellion or confusion or, or doubt father i pray you use this to restore us and father i pray that this challenge of eternity this this promise that everything hinges on everything that we believe hinges on this being fulfilled that jesus will come again and all eyes will see him father i pray that you use that to draw any unbeliever to repentance and faith that they would turn from sin and rebellion against you and say God forgive me a sinner save me that they would believe what we have sung though my sins are many I believe your mercy is more God forgive me and give me a new life I want to be ready for that day I want to know you now so I recognize you then And Father likewise I pray you would bring any strain any any superficial any biblically subpar Christian back to you today and call them to dive in, to take hold of this eternal life that we have confessed. So God, move our hearts to a right response, to think rightly and deeply, to live well and intentionally, and to glorify you, for this is always for our good. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.